Welcome to this short offering that accompanies episode three of How to Think. In this recording, Julieta Singh reads an extract from her latest book, The Breaks, which takes the form of a letter to her daughter. During our long conversation, Julieta described the book as an exploration of the very notion of breaking, thinking about bodies breaking, but also thinking about breaking from the past, breaking from history, and breaking from the structures that oppress us and others. She read to me from the book during our original conversation, and I found her words to be very resonant, so I'm really excited to share this reading with you. Enjoy. Another Thanksgiving is upon us, and this year you inform me that your first grade class will soon be studying Pocahontas. You ask me earnestly whether we might watch the Disney movie together. Intuiting my hesitation, you add that Pocahontas comes from the land near where we live now, and that she is a super important person. I concede to your request, knowing you will see this film sooner or later, and finding myself oddly curious about how Disney has rendered this history. In preparation for our date, we slice apples, pour chamomile tea, and fill bowls with popcorn before climbing into my bed to watch under the covers. Early in the film, you declare that Pocahontas reminds you of yourself, and I ask you how you see a resemblance. Eager to keep your attention on the movie, you briefly list her kindness and her connection with nature. Then, in a fabulous off-handed gesture that makes me laugh, you add that Pocahontas's hair, which is long, immaculate, and shining black, is quite similar to your own short, ever-disheveled, and unmistakably brown hair. Moments later, on the heels of your declarative affiliation with Pocahontas, you say, for the first time in your life, I wish I was white. I hit the space bar on the laptop to pause the film. I feel like I'm sliding through time, careening into transmutation. 35 years ago, I too was a little girl wishing for whiteness. I am astonished by the twinning, even though I know intellectually that a childhood wish for whiteness is as mundane as it is predictable. Still, in that split second, I want to look into your eyes, our eyes, and say, I have always loved you, little misfit. Instead, I ask an inane question. Why do you feel this way? You respond without hesitation, bluntly, because I want to be one of the good guys. I remind you that the only expressly bad guy we've seen so far in the film is the white Radcliffe. But I know you are intuiting and absorbing the representation of the savage that the film propagates. And so while there is one bad white man in this narrative, the uncivilized ways of the indigenous peoples of this film are presented as the real problem. In other words, you are reading the film through its own disturbing lens. The white man is fundamentally good if we can just beat off the one bad seed, and the indigenous peoples are inherently misguided and belligerent, even while we are given permission to love the girl who dared to love a white man. How to explain all this to you? How to say in simple terms that we are steeped in layers of ideology that make up a collective sense of goodness, beauty, and civility. To explain that these dominant narratives come to inform, if not to dictate, what we desire and how we live our most intimate lives. 
I cannot shield you from these structures of belief or their profound and abiding effects on you, but I can complicate and unearth them with you. Indeed, my role as your mother may be nothing more than an endless task of reading narratives against the grain, of resisting the mainstream's consumptive ease. When the film is done, we turn out the lights to fall asleep together and our ritual unfolds. I whisper, I love you for always. You're my favorite thing. You respond, tell me a story, Amma. Then often together we say, once upon a time, a long, long time ago, before I break into a fantastical story that you expect me night after night to invent for you on the spot. Once upon a time, a long, long time ago, there was a magical little girl. You interrupt me promptly and insist, no, not magical, Emma. So I begin again. There was an ordinary little girl. And then, frustrated with my easy adjectival foreclosures, you interrupt to assert that I should not make the story so obvious. Who is the teacher and who is the student in this elementary pedagogy? In the end, it is you who schools me to always complicate the story, to never prescribe, never reduce. There is infinite promise in this teaching. I hold the lesson in my body. On the sixth day of a nine-day work trip, the longest period I have ever been away from you, I FaceTime home and find you deeply engaged in an act of fruit sculpting. You tell me you are making a Native American village. The Native Americans are represented by banana slices and apple skins make up their shelters. Off to the side of the village, you have crafted colonial ships by slicing kiwis in half, gutting their insides and attaching the skins to the little fruit boats to serve as sails. You have created rough waters out of banana peels and a wall of carved apple manatees that surround the kiwi ships on three sides. What's happening in this scene, I ask. The rough waters and manatees are pushing the Europeans back home, you reply earnestly. I am blown away to witness this art making against the state, this anti-colonial fruit installation that is also a fantasy of organically reversing history. What I love most is that in your historical revisioning, you move us beyond the subjugated histories of indigenous resistance to colonial force. Instead, you turn your attention to the sea, letting it emerge as an actor in the opposition to the colonial mission. Your artwork veers me away from the anthropocentric position, carefully and imaginatively invoking what the earth itself might desire. <laughs>